They never know. That was really good. Hi. 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 This is the Emily and Taylor hour. Um, Welcome. We're on NPR now. Woo. So we're Sorry. Oh, yeah. I can't be that enthusiastic. That's true. Mm. You can't say woo. Mm. Mm. Mm-hmm. That's very good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Whoops. I hate it. Oh. <laughs> hey, for anyone who's here for ASMR, uh, don't. <laughs> So, did you know? Uh-huh. Because I sent it to you in a Facebook message, but you responded to me. Uh-oh. Because you ignore me half the time with Look, what I'm, I send. I'm really bad about that. So, did you know? I don't, but yes. That but there no. is a food truck in Minnesota uh-huh. that sells ice cream that's covered in glitter. Is it edible glitter? Yes. Are we sure? No. <laughs> I think they make their own, though. Okay. So it might be like sugar, like sure. glitter sugar. Sure. But it looks real cool, and, and you it, can eat it. It's just ice and cream. And you can customize it with, oh. like, all sorts of weird shit. Oh, my God. I do want that. Yeah. Like, you can make a glitter ice cream taco. Okay. Well, yeah, that's something I want and have wanted for my entire life. Right? What the fuck? Yeah. Um. So, I propose. <laughs> Please. For our 25th episode, uh-huh. maybe we should take a trip up to the cities. Uh-huh. We can get a hotel room. We uh-huh. can record that night in the hotel room. Oh, my God. And we can get ice cream. Ice cream covered in glitter? Covered in glitter. Oh, my God. Yes. Listeners, if you have not noticed over the last several episodes, we have been doing our best to make our 25th episode as exciting as possible. Glitter. At least to us. And glitter is probably going to get us most of the way there. Um, But because (laughs) you guys are not able to see the glitter, um, we would very much like to be able to share with you something special. Um, other than the fact that we are eating ice cream glitter, because that is what is going to happen. It'll be on the Instagram when we might go live on the Facebook page if it happens. Oh my God. Absolutely. By the way, we we have a Facebook page. (laughs) Hey guys, did you know? Yeah. We have a Facebook page. We've got some ratings. We do. Oh my God. Fuck. I was going to totally say these people's names. One second. One second. We got distracted. Yes. Um, so we wanted to thank really quick a couple of people who have taken the time to like our page and then review it. Especially people that we don't know. People Hi. that we don't know. We don't know you and you're awesome. Fabulous. Yeah. So uh, Sydney Lee and Ashley Black. Thank you guys thank so you. much for taking the time. Um, we really appreciate it. We do. Yeah. Um, if you guys want to review our podcast and like our page, we will also give you a sweet shout out. Remember... The flames go to Twitter and you at Taylor on Twitter. Okay, you don't know my Twitter handle because I've never said it out loud because it doesn't exist. So I'm um, gonna make one <laughs> and then people can at you. At Taylor Gadon. How about that? It doesn't exist, so have fun with that. <laughs> um, <laughs> um but yeah, thank you guys so much. And we are really looking forward to making our next episode, our twenty fifth episode, something super cool. So we do want to remind you guys that we are still looking for any survivor stories. If you have survived something even a little bit kind of cray, yeah. like, please let us know. Yeah. You can reach us at uh-oh.dailygravy at gmail.com. So it's literally just U-H-O-H dot dailygravy at gmail.com. 
We would love to hear from you there. Um, otherwise, you could PM us on our Facebook page or our Twitter, which is... Please. Oh, my God. Every <laughs> time you look at me. Uh-oh, feeling cast. Uh-oh, feeling cast. Um, For Twitter. Facebook is the uh-oh feeling. Yes. Instagram is the uh-oh feeling before you ask me. Beautiful. I don't know if you can DM on Instagram. Um, I'm not sure. I don't know. Because we're old. And we only know how to use these things on a surface level. Wow. <laughs> wow. Okay, um, but it's true. <laughs> Rude. So, yeah, we're going to do our best over the next couple of weeks to be uh, compiling as close to as what we can, like, like first-hand accounts of weird stuff people have survived. Even if you just think, like, I saw a weird dude one time, and I got away <laughs> from him by doing this. Please send it. I want to hear it. Yeah, survival tips. I got followed once, and I got on my phone and pretended to call somebody and started naming out streets. Yes. Like, you do what you got to do. Absolutely. You do what you got to do, and we would love to hear from you. And we want to make our 25th episode super special, so we would appreciate your help. Awesome. So, heading into our 24th episode, as yet unnamed as they always are, um... I'm going first, I believe, and I'm just going to go ahead and straight up warn everybody that um, it's not a good or fun one. (laughs) Yeah, this was supposed to be like the lighter episode, so I looked up something really ridiculous, and then Taylor sent me a message like, oh, so I was looking for things and then I found a dope story, and it's not cool, but it's awesome, and (laughs) like... I just, I fell in love with it in a certain way, even though it is really rough. Um, But you're going to get me first, and then you'll get Emily's hopefully much nicer story afterwards. Okay. So. Lay it on me. Emily, I'm about to tell you the story of the girl in the box. Oh. Yeah. Maybe you know it. I think I, wait. The survivor's Uh. name is Colleen Stan. Yup. The date that this starts on, anyway, is May 19th, 1977. So, um, for anybody who's listened to this podcast, or My Favorite Murder, or anything, like, true crimey, um, (laughs) the 70s are a shit show. They're real bad. VVV bad. For a lot of people. For a lot of people, including our good, sweet baby, Colleen Stan. Oh, boy. So... Colleen is a 20-year-old resident of Eugene, Oregon. Nothing good ever happens in Oregon. Nothing good. Not in the 70s. Or California. Uh Uh-huh. I mean, look, this... Or Washington. That whole coast. This encompasses the entire coast. Have fun. Oh, God. So she's living in Eugene, Oregon. But one day, she decides that she wants to surprise her friend for her birthday party. And her friend lives in Northern California. So she decides to drive to Westwood, California on the morning of May 19th, 1977. Unfortunately, when she gets to her car that morning, it doesn't start. That's a sign. So instead of abandoning her cool plan... She does what people in the 70s do. Oh, God. Can you guess what it is? It's hitchhiking, isn't it? it? It's motherfucking hitchhiking. So Colleen has hitchhiked before, and she feels comfortable with it. She's successfully gotten from A to B in the past, so why not? She gets a couple of rides south with some truckers. 
So she gets pretty close, actually, to her destination. Um, within a hundred miles, she's like a hundred miles west of where she needs to be. She ends up in Red Bluff, California, and she's dropped off by a trucker, and she ends up looking for another ride. Now, Colleen's no dummy. Again, like, she has done this before. So when a car pulls up with five young guys, and they stop and say, oh, hey, yeah, we'll take you wherever you want to go. <coughs> Let's do it. No. She turns them down. Good. Uh-huh. Because she's, again, not a dumb one. However, <laughs> Colleen waits a little longer on the same stretch of road, and this time... A car pulls up with a man and his wife and their baby inside. This is a quote from Colleen. I saw this guy. He was really kind of geeky looking, and his wife, she looked pretty average. So I hopped in the backseat of their car. Now, honestly, I do not condone hitchhiking at all whatsoever, but this is probably the most innocuous looking hitchhiking ride you could ever get. You've got... Yeah. Yeah, you've got a couple and a baby. Yeah, it's not like a single male. Yes. So, like, at this point, like, Colleen, I get you. Yeah, I get it. If you hitchhike, this is who you hitchhike with, to yep. be really honest. Yeah. So, now the really sad part about it is that they actually stop at a rest stop so that Colleen can go to the bathroom. She goes into the bathroom, and at this point, she hears a voice. And for most people, I think this would just feel like their conscience or... That uh-oh feeling, the whole yeah, thing that we yeah, always talk about, yeah. this is the uh-oh feeling coming to her. In her, she's a very religious woman, so in her mind, it is God or an angel, sure. something. It's telling me to jump out the window of the bathroom and run far away and don't look back. Yeah. But Colleen... She doesn't do it, does she? No, she super doesn't do mm. it. Colleen believes that this voice is just sort of being overprotective. And again, it's just a car with a man and a woman and their child. So she gets back into the back seat. This time, when she gets back in, there is a small wooden box on the seat next to her. And it wasn't there before. She rides with them in the car for another 20 minutes before they ask if it is okay with her if they stop and take a look at the ice caves nearby. Colleen feels indebted to them because... They're giving her a ride. Right. As you would. Right. So she says, yeah, sure. She's expecting they're just a family. Right. They just, maybe they were doing some sightseeing. Living their lives. Exactly. They stopped With their baby. Yes. This all seems very normal. And then the car pulls over. The wife and baby get out and they walk away toward a stream. Wait, does the baby walk? No, the baby's being carried by the wife. (laughs) (laughs) It's a V, young baby. (laughs) Um... So, she's watching the two people walk away, the wife and the baby, and she's still inside the car, and she realizes she doesn't know where the man went. He got out of the car very suddenly, and now she doesn't know where he is. She suddenly, she looks to the right, and suddenly the man is on the opposite side of the car. He's at the window. He gets through the window, because I think it's just down. It's like a nice yeah, day. Yeah. The windows are down. He gets through the window. He's 70s. Yeah. He opens the car door. He comes in next to her. So he's like holding her down with his body, and he puts a black blindfold over her eyes. And then he takes the box that was sitting next to her and puts it over her head. 
This is a quote from Colleen. It had hinges, so it was kind of opened up like a clam or something. It went over your head, had a hole for your neck, so that your head is totally encased inside the box when it's closed up. I want to state that like a lot of this story that I got is from a like true crime documentary about her. So these are literal words that I like heard her say that I transcribed. <laughs> so this was a really rough one for me personally. Have fun everybody. Um, so she's inside this box now that's just like for her head. And not only is it this weird clamshell box, it is on the inside encased with carpeting. So that if she screams, no one can hear her. And honestly, if that's not the craziest shit, <laughs> like, I don't even know, like, what to do with that information. This man thought this the oh, God, fuck yeah. through. I mean, that box is made for a human person's head. Yep. And it has carpet on the inside. Yep. Like, it's crazy. Yep. So Colleen is trapped inside this box with her head in, stuck inside of it. She also can't see because of the blindfold. She has no idea what's going on. She hears the rest of the family get back in the car. And they begin driving. And she doesn't realize where they're headed, but where they're headed is back toward Red Bluff, where they first picked her up. Because it turns out that's where these people just live. So, hold on. Uh-huh. So they drove. Uh-huh. With this woman sitting in the back seat with a box on her head. Uh-huh. And nobody driving past thought it was weird. Apparently nobody saw. Yeah. Like... You know, there's a lot of stuff people... I mean, when you're driving on the highway, do you always look left or right? Yes. Well, okay, that's cool. Apparently, most people in the 70s do not. Either way, they get there without incident. They're at a house now. It's getting dark, so they're doing this under the cover of mostly night. They take the box off her head, but she's still blindfolded as they lead her into their house and into the basement. Here's a tiny bit about the man. Turns out the man's name is Cameron Hooker. He's 24 years old at the time of this, and Colleen is 20. He is a sociopath and a sexual sadist. What a great combo for it's a, everyone. It's a really good combo for the world. Um, yeah, it's great. That's mm, just, that's, yeah. Yeah, it's um, the kind you want to have pick you up in a fucking car. <laughs> um, so Hooker takes Colleen into the basement of his house. And he ties her wrists to the ceiling. He, like, has her stand up on a box, ties her wrists to the ceiling, and then removes the box. So she's just dangling there from her wrists. She says, already, it's incredibly painful. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's just your wrists. wrists break. Yes. Like, that is horrible. You're They're not meant to support your weight like that. No, your entire weight is on this, like, delicate part of you. And then he starts whipping her. Oh, God. He only stops, eventually, according to Colleen, in order to have sex with his wife underneath Colleen's dangling body. This is all happening in the basement. This is all within, like, half an hour of her arriving down there. At some point, Colleen blacks out, totally. Sure. She comes back to when she is being taken down from the ceiling and brought over to a box. 
Because that's what the story needs, I think, is like another box. So it's here it box is. box inside a bigger box called a basement box. Yeah, so it's like a, she was in like a tiny box, and now she's in like a basement box, and now she's in like a smaller box. This is like some fucked up nesting dolls shit. It is the worst kind of Russian <laughs> nesting doll you could ever imagine, yes. God. <laughs> so in the corner of the basement is what is essentially a crate. Colleen is blindfolded when he puts her inside of the damn thing, but she knows it's a crate barely big enough for a person because she's in it now. And thus begins Colleen's life for unfortunately a long long time. Colleen is locked inside the box for 23 hours a day. She is let out for one hour to be sexually tortured and fed. Quote from Colleen. Pretty much the routine became, he would come down in the evenings, give me something to eat, something to drink, let me use a bedpan, and then he would hang me up and whip me. This happens every day for literally months. It is only after nine months, nine months, 23 hours a day in a box, in January of 1978, that Hooker approaches Colleen with a contract. The contract signs over Colleen's body and entire person to Hooker. It said Colleen was referred to, uh, must refer to Hooker as master and must refer to his wife as ma'am. At this point, Hooker also tells Colleen that there is an underground network of slave traders called The Company that is watching her at all times. According to him, she is a part of a slave, sex slave network. And these people are at all times watching the phone lines, watching the house. If she tries to escape, it doesn't matter. Now, this is a person who has been stuck in a box 23 hours a day for nine months. Yeah. So this story to her doesn't seem that outlandish because what he's saying is exactly what's already happened to her for so long. And he's been able to keep her so well. So, like, why not? Why would there not be some grander organization that's just allowing this to happen? Quote from Colleen. This is what he told her. Go ahead and pick up the phone. They're listening. Go ahead and walk out the door. They're watching the house. You might as well put a shotgun to your head and pull the trigger because they're going to get you. She believes him. From then on, Colleen was a slave in their household, referred to only by the letter K. Although the whipping continued, it was soon joined by oral and vaginal rape with implements... A lot of horrible stuff. However, for a long time, Hooker never had sex with Colleen himself. This was because he had an agreement that he struck with his wife. Sure. You might be wondering, what the fuck's going on with Janice? Yeah, this seems like like that couple in England that abducted people. Yeah, right? And the wife went along with it as long as she got a part of it. Now, like, I also, when I, like, part of what drew me to this story is how fascinating this idea is that, like, a person can pick up a woman and their wife and baby are in the car and the wife's cool with it. And sometimes, yes, it's like that, where, like, there are kidnappers who, they're in it, in it together. 
They're in it yeah. to hurt this person at the same time. They are both sadists. They're right. both sociopaths. However, Janice is different. So here's the thing about Janice. Janice met Cameron Hooker when she was 15 years old. She suffered from epilepsy and was raised by incredibly strict parents. Like, she wasn't even allowed out of her house most of the time. Like, it was not allowed. She was incredibly naive and super trusting and a very easily manipulated person. And she's 15. She meets Cameron and he is 19 years old. He wants to date her and somehow he walks into her house and talks to her very strict parents and manages to convince them to allow them to date. That's a sociopath if I've ever heard it. Somebody who just shit. turn it on. Yeah. Yep. I don't know. I don't even know how he does it. But he, he has moves. Lots um, of them, apparently. Uh, apparently. Too many. Gross. Yeah. Nasty. Ugh. On their very first date, Cameron convinces Janice to let him strip her down and tie her to a tree by her wrists so that he can assault her. He whips her and he stakes her to the ground. He alternates this treatment as it goes on. They have many more dates. He does this again. He alternates this treatment with affection so that this very naive young Janice thinks that that's just what like a relationship is. That's what sex is. They are married in 1975, two years before they abduct Colleen. And the treatment, unfortunately for Janice, only gets worse. As soon as like they live under the same house, he is demanding more and more of her. So for the next two years, Janice is Hooker's sexual slave. She is beaten, tortured, raped, assaulted on a regular basis. And she believes this is normal. But after those two years, this level of cruelty that he has begun to inflict on her is way too much for her. And they decide to strike a deal. Hooker agrees to give Janice a child, which is all she's ever wanted, in return for allowing Hooker to have a sex slave all his own. Janice is what is referred to as a compliant victim, if anyone's yeah. ever heard that term. Yeah. Someone who allows their own victimization in return for some payoff. So she gets a kid, and she gets to not be beaten all the time, yeah. in return for allowing Hooker to have a sex slave. Eventually, unfortunately... After all this has gone down for a while, um, Hooker breaks his pact with Janice and he starts raping Colleen. Like, outright doing that. The and fact that he lasted that long... Seems shocking, well, it's right? it's kind of surprising. Yeah. That that he even honored that for as long as he did. Because it does, like, it plays into the idea of, like, can sociopaths love or have some form of love. He has some form of loyalty, it seems yeah. like, just in that, yes, I will not actually have sex with this woman because you say so. Right. Seems really weird, right? Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Um, but eventually, like, he just starts doing He's it. He's a fucked up person. Yes. I mean, maybe the most fucked up. He starts raping Colleen, and he continues to do so at least once per month, according to Colleen. In 1978... The Hooker family moves into a mobile home, which means there's no basement where they were keeping Colleen before. But it's no matter. 
Because Colleen is kept inside a crate, as usual, and now it's stored underneath the waterbed in Cameron and Janice Hooker's bedroom. She lives underneath their bed now, in a box. At one point, Janice Hooker has a second child, which she gives birth to, in that bed, on top of where Colleen is living. Oh, God. Yeah, so that's cool. Everything's, like, fine. Um, Is it? Nope. It's super not. It's super Um, not. Why did you do this to yourself? I don't know. This was supposed to be the fun episode. We can't all have fun episodes. Last <laughs> episode was a pretty fun episode. We've had a lot of fun episodes, everybody. Look. <laughs> Look. Listen. There's light at the end of this tunnel. Yes. This is a survivor story. Right. The light is a long time coming, but it's coming. Look at it. Hey, audience, listeners. There's light. It's over there. It's like just, way down the hallway and to the left. You right. just kind of got to keep going. Just keep walking. It's fine. You'll see it eventually. Just, you know, just. So because Colleen had signed the sex slave contract and because she did everything she could to, like, give in to Hooker's demands, she did everything he ever wanted, she eventually began to have more freedom. At first, this mainly included cleaning up around the house during the day. Another thing that Janice didn't have to do which kept her pretty compliant. She is still also whipped, tortured, raped, but she is allowed out of her box for hours a day. Better than before. Yep. I guess. She spends the rest of 1978 this way. I'm still waiting for that light. It's coming. Okay. At one point, this part's not the light. Hey, everyone. (laughs) (laughs) This part is not the light. I'm sorry. At one point, Hooker does make Janice help him build a medieval torture device. Um, It's a stretching rack. You know about those, right? So how big is this mobile home? Is it like out in the middle of nowhere where they've got some land to build on? They do have some land. But then they build a shed, and that's where this okay. torture rack goes. So I was going to say, if you're building that, like, out on, like, the fake, like, turf in front of your right. house with the little awning over it. Right. No, they Just bought, like, like an Just like, hey, acre. neighbor Bob, <laughs> nothing to see here. It's my new barbecue. I heard that if you buy a whole pig and then you stretch it a whole bunch, it's, like, real good. It's, like, the best. Don't mind the screams that you might hear at any point. Those are just pig screams. <laughs> Oh my god. Um, Yeah, so unfortunately, they do build that, and they do a good job of it, and then they put Colleen on it, and they torture her. Mm. It's very bad. They stretch her out a whole bunch. Yeah. Um, For anybody who knows anything about medieval torture devices. Yeah, they're horrendous. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's better to be stretched than to have that thing where they put a rat in it, and then... They oh, do the God. fire thing, yep. and it's real gross. I mean, look, there's a it's lot It's like, of... it was fucked up time. Uh-huh. Like, we thought the 70s was bad, but, like, the, the 1470s? S- I was going to say, like, the 1415, <laughs> 1670s, all that shit right there, like, real bad. <laughs> yeah, so, here's the thing. Colleen is a motherfucking survivor on a level that I have never even heard before. She is intense. She decides she's going to do everything she can to stay on Hooker's good side. Like, I mean, so far she's been living with them for almost two years. 
This is her life now. And human beings are hugely adaptable. That is the one thing that psychologists will say. That's why Stockholm Syndrome exists. It's just, you're just trying to survive. Yep. And Colleen is the ultimate survivor in this way. She does whatever Hooker wants. She ends up working in their garden. She cleans the house. She does everything he says. And at some point in all of this, Hooker starts to feel like he can trust Colleen not to run away. Partially because of the trust she's built between them and partially because he knows that she fears the company. This organization that seems to be watching her at all times that he fucking made up. So she, he starts giving her more and more freedom, slowly but surely. So, uh, again, if you recall, she was abducted in 1977 in May. This is December of 1980. Mm. Colleen has been a sex slave for two and a half years. She is 23 years old, and she's built enough trust between Hooker and herself that he decides to let her call her family as a Christmas gift. Oh, God. Yeah. Um, so her whole time, the whole time, her family believed she had gone off and gotten herself into a cult. Sure. It definitely is the season. Oh, tis the (laughs) absolute season. Her dad is in this thing I watched and he is a very tiny eyed, sad man. Like he looks very rural. Like he's been working his whole life. He's got like overly tanned skin for a white dude. So like you've been working in, like, the fields forever, and just the tiniest, beadiest, saddest, reddest eyes. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I can't, it's fine. He's, like, fine. But, like, damn that guy's face. Anyway, he believed, truly believed, that she just sort of disappeared one day and went off to join a cult, because that is literally what happened back then. <laughs> like, yeah, there was enough of that going around that that's what he thought. So, they have no idea where she is this entire time. And she calls her family on this day in December 1980, and she is as vague as possible. Because she has to be. She believes the company is watching the phone lines. Her father is relieved to hear from her, but is concerned by how she sounds. She doesn't sure. sound like herself. Yeah, that uh-huh. happens. It also happens when you're in a cult. Yeah. Unfortunately. Yeah. But Colleen reassures them that she is fine. That everything is fine. Because she is trying to keep her family safe and her safe. Colleen is eventually allowed to jog in their neighborhood. She, be, she spends a bunch of time outside in the garden. And she never says anything to anyone. She starts seeing their neighbors. She never says anything to anyone out of her fear of the company. That's how hard he has her. Like, that's how well he's done. It is March... 1981, and Hooker tells Colleen that the company has cleared her to go see her family after she proves her loyalty. Oh, God. Yeah, dude. You ever want to guess how somebody can prove their loyalty? Kill someone? Um, almost. He tells her to put a shotgun in her mouth and pull the trigger. Oh. Close. It's not loaded, but she doesn't know that. No. And she does it. Yeah. Because at the time, that's almost nothing to her. It's a way out. Uh-huh. Oh, my God. If she died, she'd yeah. be like, uh-huh. Fine. But either way, that's just, it's a way for her to prove to him that she will do whatever he says. And she does it. And she is rewarded with a trip to her family. 
So Hooker tells Colleen to tell her family that Hooker is her fiance. And he also, on the way there, tells her that the company is watching her family's house, that she has to watch everything she says, or if the company hears her say one thing out of line, they will kill her entire family. She gets to spend this lovely, like, 20 hours with her family, just her. And then Hooker comes and picks her up, acts like her fiance, and they're all asking him all these questions. They take a picture of him with her and everything. Yeah. He looks like his face in this picture is like, I do not want to be seen. <laughs> Whoops. I have fucked Oopsie up. Oopsie doodle buns. Uh-huh. They're also being like, where do you guys live? We would love to be able to send cards. What's your address? Sure. He dodges all these questions by saying, oh, we're in between. We're moving. I will forward you the address when we have it. He super doesn't do that, obviously. Shocker. So when Colleen is brought back to the hooker house, this part really sucks. I'm so sorry. This really sucks. Oh, God. Okay. She spends the next three years locked in that box because hooker decided he had taken a step too far in letting her see her family and letting her family see him. So he takes away all of her freedoms for three years. And basically, she's just in a box. Like, literally a human-sized, like, curled up in the fetal position box. It isn't until 1984 that she is able to convince Hooker to let her take a job outside the house. Personally, they don't say this, but personally, I think they move from a house into a trailer home because they're having financial troubles. Yeah. Yeah. And she uses that knowledge to convince him to take, let her take a job so that she can financially help the family. So she gets a job as a maid in a local motel. And at the same time, Hooker, because he is disgusting and insatiable, Hooker decides he's going to start building a sex dungeon and makes it clear to everyone his desire to keep more sex slaves. Now back to Janice for a sec. Let's just go back to Janice for a hot sec. They have two kids now. They have two children. One of those children, at this point, should be old enough to start processing. Uh Uh-huh. They don't even mention that kid, though. I don't know how they keep that kid away, but I doubt they do. Honestly, I bet that kid is just like, well, this is all I know. Sometimes there's a woman named Kay who comes and cleans our house, and then she goes into a box under Mommy's bed. I don't worry about it. (laughs) Honestly, like, what does that kid know other than that? Nothing. Anywho, it's, my life is hard. Um, God, I can't believe I chose this story. Yeah, that's all on you. Look, Colleen is No one told beautiful you to do woman. this. So over the last several years, Colleen, or I should say, Janice, has been getting increasingly upset with the amount of time Hooker is spending with Colleen. Yeah. Because he's basically spending a lot of time raping and torturing her. Yeah. A lot more time than he is spending with his wife. Sure. Huzzah. She hates... The idea that he might get a dungeon where she could he could have more women yeah. that he then has all this time with. And Janice is suddenly sharing his, her husband, her horrible fucking husband, with like, I don't know, three, four, five, six women. And how long until he kills one of them? Mm, yeah. 
It's a lot of bad shit all at once. And all of this is just sort of flooding into Janice, slowly but surely. Because she is an abused woman. Yeah. And somebody who has been indoctrinated into this from the age of 15. Yeah. According to the documentary I watched, it is at this point that she realizes that her husband is insatiable, that nothing will stop him from hurting people. And it starts to make her see Colleen as like a fellow human being. Not just somebody who's taking Janice's own pain away, but like a fellow person who is feeling all that pain. Yeah. So on August 9th, 1984, Janice tells her pastor all this shit. Oh. Yeah. I wish I was... I want to be a fly on the wall of that fucking confessional... Because, like, holy shit. Forgive me, Father, for I have sinned. Forgive like, me, Father, for I have witnessed some shit and oh, let it happen. Oh, bunch. Uh-huh. I stood by yes. while all of these things happened, so yes. it wouldn't happen to me. Exactly. And their pastor, that pastor, I can't even imagine, all I heard was that that pastor was like, this is unnatural and you need to get out right now. Yeah. But I imagine that that man is shaking and freaking the fuck out and like, where do I go to call the cops right now? Fucking exactly. But Janice's next stop is immediately to the motel where Colleen works. She finds Colleen and she tells her that everything that Hooker told her was a lie. There is no company. No one is watching her. She is free to leave. At any time. This is a quote from Colleen as she's hearing this from Janice. She's thinking, oh my God, how could I have ever believed that was true? Why has she waited all this time to tell me the truth? I mean, it's been seven years by this point. It's been seven years. They're like sister wives. Yeah, in this really horrible way. In this really fucked up way. But for the longest time, Janice believed that Colleen was this weird rival yeah. Whereas now she's finally seeing her as like, no, no, this is a another not victim. Here by choice. Right. Neither of us really yeah. truly are. So that day, Janice tells Colleen that she is free to leave, and then she immediately takes Colleen to Janice's own parents' house to make a call. I don't have an answer for why Janice did anything else she did, like honestly, but like this is a decent Thing. Like, she woke up one day, and she did one decent thing with her whole miserable, shitty life. And it was letting Colleen make these phone calls. Colleen makes two phone calls. The first one is to her father to tell her that she is coming home. And the second one is to Cameron motherfucking Hooker. And she tells him she's never coming back to his home again. And apparently he starts crying, Do I care? Literally, no. But she tells him this, and then she gets on a bus, and she goes the fuck home. Did like, anyone call the cops? Eventually, this does happen. This is my the aftermath part. Janice goes to the police immediately after this. Okay. So, like, she goes to her pastor, she goes to Colleen, she frees her, she goes to the police. And her story, unfortunately, for Janice, for Colleen, for a second there, is so nutbar. Yeah. On a level. That no one believes her. <laughs> like, yeah. It's, yeah. Like, they interviewed the cop in this Especially thing. in the 80s. Like, Oh, yeah. Are you after getting? everything that happened in the 70s. It's like, like, what I are refuse. you on? Right. Oh, my God. Yeah, what drugs? Seriously. But, so, yeah. Like, they interviewed the cop in this thing I watched. And he was like, look, this woman 
came to me out of her damn mind telling me that they had a woman in a box under their bed for four years. Like, what was I supposed to think? But the thing is, they get a hold of Colleen, now back home at her parents, and she corroborates everything. Yeah. So on August 22nd, 1984, police arrest Cameron Hooker on charges of sex crimes, kidnapping, false imprisonment, fucking etc. Like, a million shits. And for a while there, it looks like they're not going to find any evidence. Because him and Janice have been covering their tracks. But eventually... They find a negative photo of the slave contract Colleen had to sign. (laughs) Yeah. Cameron Hooker is taken to trial and sentenced to 104 years in prison. Good. The judge literally said this. I am going to sentence this man to the maximum because he is the most dangerous psychopath I have ever come up against. He appears to be the opposite of what he really is, and he will never not be a danger to women. After the trial... Both Janice and Colleen change their names and they try to move on. Sure. But they do not speak. No. (laughs) Colleen, I don't have good feelings towards Jan. Even though I know she was also a victim, she had freedom and choice. And she could have put an end to this a lot sooner than she did. She could have saved all of us. Cameron Hooker was denied parole in 2015. He's up again in 2022. Nope. One last thing from Colleen. My first feeling was, when I was free and reunited with my family, I was just so filled with joy. It was just like my cup was overflowing with joy. Coming home is the first step to the rest of your life. As far as I know, Colleen's doing pretty well because that um, documentary I watched, she was much older, and she didn't even shed a fucking tear. She just told it. Like it was like, well, considering how many times she's probably had to tell it. Oh, probably. And all the time she's had, but still like all that seven fucking years in a box. And she's just telling her story. Like what a fucking hero, honestly. So yeah, that's a, that was a hard story and I apologize to everyone. (laughs) But Hey, uh, Colleen Stan, you're my hero. Killing it. Do you want to do a a quick star wipe version of our podcast? Yeah, we're going to do it. Hold on one sec. Are you ready? Mm. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, look, I'm sorry, okay? I'm just really excited to hear yours. Hey, we both have margaritas now. Yeah, Yeah, we do. Yeah. Let's just focus on that for a while. So I had like a fun thing written at the top for this one, and I'm not going to do that now. Why not? Because my heart hurts. But like if you do it, maybe it'll like help. No, (laughs) it won't. Oh, no, I do need you to do that, please. (laughs) Please. We just need like, here's a fresh, clean start for the rest of the podcast. Ooh, we did a whole like star wipe version. The harp noise. Like, it's different now. It's better now. Mm. Please? Mm. Let's talk about radiation, baby. Let's talk about nuclear warfare. We. <laughs> wow, I hate there. it. There you go. Yeah, That's what so you hard. wanted. <laughs> is it better than my bees song? Um, no. Nothing's better <laughs> than that. Um. <laughs> All right. So, someone on my Facebook posted an article of how to survive a nuclear explosion 
in the first five to ten minutes if you're at least a half mile away from the blast zone. Oof. And that reminded me of the one time that five dudes willingly stood under an atomic bomb with a cameraman as it exploded and lived. That reminded you of that story you already knew about? Yeah. That's cool. Listen, I know a lot of weird shit, okay? Can you remind... Do you know this for sure? Because you're supposed to be able to hold your thumb up, right? To the blast to know how far away you are? I can't remember. I just know that, like, if you hold it up and, like, you can... If your thumb can cover the entirety of the main, like, blast, you're far enough away to survive a nuclear fallout. I mean, it depends on if you're downwind or not. Probs. Yeah, I so, mean, that probs means a big deal. Yeah. yeah I'm going to uh, talk about that. Oh, yes, please. So I'm going to talk about nuclear fallout. Yeah. And how to survive nuclear warfare. Is this relevant to people who have played the Fallout games? Because no. Because I enjoy them. No. Damn it. <laughs> this is way more terrifying in real life. Fuck. <laughs> so let's talk about Colonel Sidney Bruce. Lieutenant Colonel Frank P. Ball, Major Norman Bodie Bojinger, Bodinger, there we go, Major John Hughes, Corporal Don Luttrell, and Cameraman George Yoshitake. Nice. All right, so let's travel back in time. To when, Emily? July 19th, 1957. Ooh. The grass is green. It's legal to beat your wife with a stick as long as it's bigger than your thumb. <laughs> and the cars are up and coming. Yeah. So, five Air Force volunteers, which are the five men with titles that I read, mm-hmm. and one cameraman, George, stood directly underneath a two-ton nuclear missile that detonated 18,500 feet above them in the desert of Las Vegas. Now, why would you go and do something stupid like that? Um, yeah, that's a good cue. That's the only cue so, I have. So, the goal of this was to prove to people that nuclear radiation wasn't a big deal. Oh, no. Oh, no. Like, that. it was fine to literally stand under an air-to-air nuke. Like, 100% fine. Oh, God. No protection. You're gonna do great. It's gonna be fine. All of Japan disagrees. Well, this was way Prior. smaller okay. than the one that they did. This was, like... One eighteenth of the size, I think. Who cares? My God. Also, that one made contact with the land, and this was an air-to-air. Don't worry. Uh, I'll get into the specifics. I learned a lot about nuclear warfare yeah. and the difference between no, I'm <laughs> different types of missiles. Yeah. Fun fact, because I always have fun facts in mind. I love it. Unlike you, which is uh, yours is just heartbreak. Okay. And anger. Okay, excuse me. So, (laughs) just this last time, you can't argue that. Fun fact. Fun fact. When the cameraman found out that he was going to be filming a literal nuclear explosion over their heads, he protected himself with a ball cap. So he's clearly thinking ahead. Yeah. (laughs) He's the only smart man there. Now let me paint a picture for you. Oh, please. There's a video of this. If you go on YouTube... Uh Uh-huh. And you look up, or, like, you type in, like, five men under an explosion, you'll see it. It's out there. Oh, it's, God. Yeah. I watched the video. Fuck. It was a little after sunrise when these five officers of the Air Force, wearing only their summer uniforms, looking snazzy, <laughs> took 
their position next to a sign that literally, and you can see it in the video, saying ground zero, population five. For them? Yeah. Like, they, were, they were having fun. Is there a flip board where they're like, population zero, and then they walk on and they're like, five? No, like- no, just, just that. So, they counted down the seconds as two Air Force F-89 jets went overhead, and then one fired the nuclear-tipped air-to-air missile. And sorry, it's about one-eighth of the size of the A-bomb that was dropped. That still seems so fucking huge, yeah. my dude. So, this is a quote from one of the guys. Mm-hmm. We felt a heat pulse and a very bright light. A fireball. It was red. The sky looked black around it. It was boiling above us. And then, 13 seconds later, to be precise, they got hit by the sound wave from the explosion. Oh, God. Because if you know anything about nuclear explosions, it's the flash of light first, and then it's the sound and the air rushing out. That would make sense. Light travels faster than sound. So, another quote. It was tremendous, directly above our heads. It was a huge fireball, a perfect, perfect shot. Now let's talk about George. Hi, George. Hey, you good? So, George was a civilian cameraman who was working with the Air Force. He wasn't told that the test was going to be directly overhead until he arrived. I'm worried about George right now. Here's a quote from George. Oh, no. I remembered I had a baseball cap, and I thought... I'd better wear that, just in case. You remember that baseball cap I was uh-huh. talking about? Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, there was actual thought into that, of putting it on. Nobody thought, hey, a helmet. Yeah. <coughs> Afterward, he found out that the film that he was making was literally just for government propaganda. He didn't know that walking in? No. What did he think he was making it for? No. That was a weird time to be alive. Let's talk about how our government sucks. Anyway, whatever. No, don't worry. I'm going to get into that. Oh, thank God. Actually in this paragraph. Oh, good. So here's a quote from George. It was a publicity stunt to show the American public how safe it was during an atomic bomb. Christ. And that if there was a war or something with atomic bombs going off, that it was going to be safe for the general public. I'm sorry. This is 1957, you said? Yep. Because... What... It's after World War II, and it's not even the Cold War times yet. But it's coming. Oh, my God. And we're already propagandizing. Yep, because this is... All right. Let me just... Okay. All right. Okay. Just... Uh I have info. (laughs) So, by the late 1950s, America was very fearful of a nuclear attack. You might have seen some old propaganda about duck and cover drills. Especially in schools. Yeah, those don't work. No, but they were a thing, mm-hmm. and they were created by the Federal Civil Defense Administration, which was created in 1951. I think there were jingles. Yep, there were jingles. There was a turtle being chased by, like, a fox or something. Oh, Christ. Like, I saw the pictures. Like, there was a whole thing. Stupid. They made a ton of propaganda to make people believe it was going to be okay. Now... I'm not going to get into the craziness of some of what was released because I literally just, I didn't have time for that. There was a lot. But back in the 1950s, the U.S. military didn't have intercontinental ballistic missiles. So 
if the Soviet Union bombed us, the missile that they fired in the test above people's heads was America's literally, like, their only defense. Was an air-to-air to shoot down the other missile. Right. And they needed something with enough zing behind it to completely destroy it. And they needed to prove, hey, a little bit of nuclear fallout isn't going to affect you, like, at all, because it's better than literally being blown up by the Soviet Union. Right. Okay. So, that was that was the thing. And then there's a filmmaker who did a bunch of documentaries on nuclear testing um, with a quote that said, that was basically to show that life can go on as normal with these nuclear air-to-air rockets exploding in the sky. <laughs> they wanted to show that this was really no big deal. And they did everything they could to say, well... This is no big deal. He's not the most eloquent. Yeah, no, he's not. Uh, he's not the PR person they were hoping for. No. But he's the PR person they deserve. No. Um. So, let's zoom back. Oh, God. To our guinea pigs. I can't help. Oh. So, Colonel Bruce, like, was just 100% totally bought into it. Like, after they survived it, they lit up cigars. Like, they were slapping each other on the backs. Like, just... Super happy. I can't believe these five men just walked into that. Sure. Yeah. So here's a quote from Colonel Bruce. My only regret right now is that everybody couldn't have been out there at ground zero with us. Ugh. Folks, it was just a wonderful thrill. It's not a roller coaster, Bruce. The fuck? Right. So officials did measure for the radiation on the ground at the time, and they said it was negligible. Okay. Yeah. What do they think is negligible in 1957? Yeah. Uh Uh-huh. (laughs) Uh-huh. So, George, being the good cameraman that he is for the Air Force, did also film a lot of other nuclear tests in the 50s and 60s. Now, when this article was written, he was still alive. He had, like, just turned 83, As far as I know, he's still alive. Wow. And another quote from him saying just at that time, he uh, just thought it was another job and he didn't give it too much thought. But then again, he was young. So only one of the other of the five men, Don Luttrell, was still alive at the time of this article at the age of 88. All the others had died. Now, I believe, yeah, George did tell them all six of the people that were there that day have had cancer, but there's no definitive link to that specific day. Um, okay, look, I know that cancer's a really prevalent thing, but all six of them? All six of them. And I believe a few of them did die from said cancer. That's too many people to have had cancer all at once. Like, they were all at that... Really? Yeah. My God. Yeah. So, they survived it. Uh Uh-huh. But at what cost? Right. So, they asked George if he would do it now. And he said, I'm going to have to think about that for a little bit. Are you serious? Yeah. So, he was all for it. Yeah. Yeah. And now he's like, yeah, okay, maybe I wouldn't do that again. Maybe I've watched all these people die and had cancer myself that I've survived-ish. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yep. So, let's let's talk about 
the radiation and nuclear fallout. Yes, please. From missile testing. Mm-hmm. Now, the radiation from aerial nuclear testing does have health implications for the people that live in that area even today. Yeah. So, Radiation Exposure Compensation Act. That's a thing. We had to pass a law? Because of nuclear fallout. Oh, God. Great. Yeah, that was deemed necessary because of everything that happened. So, lots of people associated with the Nevada test site operations got cancer over the years. Some $150 million has been paid out to compensate about 2,000-plus on-site participants of nuclear testing under, you guessed it, the Radiation Exposure Compensation Act. Great. Now, here's the thing. Another thing. We have many things. So many things. In this particular explosion that these guys stood under... They, they were in a pretty safe position, according sure. to an expert. The bomb itself, again, by nuclear standards, was small. It was only two kilotons. Only. Only. They weren't in a zone that was going to be affected too much by immediate radiation. The, okay. Uh-huh. Just the latent radiation. <laughs> yeah. So, the bomb was small enough and high enough in the air that it it wouldn't have sucked up dust to produce much fallout. Much. The remaining cloud would have been full of fission products, but it would have been extremely hot, and most of it would have just stayed aloft until it cooled down, by which point it probably would have been spread more diffusely. Now, for that diffuse spreading... Mm-hmm. There was a place next to that test site called St. George, Utah. Uh Uh-oh. While the people filming volunteered to be there. Yeah. St. George, Utah didn't volunteer to have this done. This is just a town and and they they live there. were downwind of the Nevada test site. Oh, God. So... The folks in St. George, Utah, were repeatedly hit by uninvited fallout. Oh, God. Because it was a test site. Right. So, one of the residents wrote to the, the author of the article that I found in 1953. So, even before this. Before this. There had been enough testing already. That one test, codenamed Harry actually deposited quite a lot of fallout on St. George to the point where the residents were forced to stay inside for many hours and prohibited from washing their cars until they became less radioactive. Oh my god. That's really fucked up. Yeah. So over the years, says his source Alex, the U.S. government has paid some $813 million to more than 16,000 downwinders. Oh, my God. To compensate them for illnesses, 
presumably connected to the bomb testing program. So, just because a test like this is being done to demonstrate that it's super safe, it's not. Guys, it's not. We didn't know fuck about radiation back then. No. We didn't learn about what happened to Japan until, like, decades later. Right, because it... Nuclear radiation takes a while. It festers in your body. And it it stays in the ground. Yeah. It creates tumors through generations of people. Yeah. You have no idea until later. Oh, my God. Yeah. So they they survived it. And most of them, let's see, because I found someone who did the the Google foo for me. For the the hunt. Yeah. Um, Colonel Sidney Bruce lived to age 86. Lieutenant Colonel Frank Ball lived to age 83. Major John Hughes lived to age 71. Major Norman Bodinger, um, they weren't sure. He may still be alive. Don Luttrell, as we said, was also still alive. And then... George was still alive. Huh. So. So these people lived to be a decent age. Yeah. But. But. Many of them underwent cancer. Yes. Like, here's the thing. The idea to me that at some point we were, I mean, it's it's like just over 10 years since we ended World War II, right? And it's not in the height of what we would call the Cold War. That's the 70s, the 80s. But it was brewing. But it was definitely brewing. Enough that we were already teaching people, our own citizens, that, hey, it's cool if we get bombed by Russia because we have counter bombs. And it's cool if those counter bombs explode the other bombs in midair. Like, it's going to suck for a little bit. But it'll be okay. We don't foresee any long-term effects on right. you as a person. Ultimately, it's safe if we explode the explodies. Yeah. I can't... Make the boom fucking... boom go away with another boom boom. The thing... The funny thing about it is, like, look, propaganda is... I feel like propaganda is so much more, like... It's much more subterfuge now. Yeah. Because of the internet. It was so blatant back then. Oh, God. Yeah. Holy shit. I can't... I mean, uh, just, like... The the reels in front of the movies that they used to play. Oh yeah, just all of the World War Two propaganda. Support the troops. Yeah, <laughs> Uncle Sam wants you. Buy war bonds. Yeah, turning your medals. Don't worry about this nuclear fallout. It's, it's fine. fine. <laughs> America. Hi, we're America. Ah. <laughs> Like, good Christ, my dudes. Yeah. Like, ugh. So I think what we've discovered with this podcast is that the 50s and the 70s and the 80s. And the 1470s. And the 14, 15, (laughs) 16, 70s. We're all really... All garbage. Just trash. I have some tips on how to survive nuclear fallout. Oh my fallout. god, please. I love this. Because it's going to happen. It was happen. surprisingly easy to find. Um, with yeah, 
I know who our president is. We're and that was worried. in some of the articles of being like, so he's been like playing at a nuclear warfare with North Korea. We so let's um, all the stuff from the 1980s. And here we are. We're going to update it a bit. Uh-huh. So there was a, a scientist that did a study on how to survive this. Yes, please. And I, I'm pretty sure it's the same dude that was in the video that my f- Facebook friend linked of, like, running people through the street and down into a basement and then oh, gathering them all in the middle of a basement and looking very serious. I'm like, <gasps> look out! Nuclear bombs! She's like, I don't know. <laughs> so, he says, his name is Dylan, and... He said it, it depends on how far away you are from the blast, because that will determine when the fallout arrives. Sure. So if you are immediately next to or in a solid shelter when the bomb goes off, stay there until rescuers come to evacuate you to less radioactive vistas. Oh, God. They use the word vistas. Vistas. That sounds like we're going on vacation, my yeah. dude. If you aren't already in a bomb shelter, because everyone has bomb shelters. Look, everyone has one of those. It's fine. But you know that a good shelter is about five minutes away. Maybe a large apartment building with a basement that you can see a few blocks away. His calculations suggest hoofing it over there as quickly as possible and staying in place. Criminy. Until rescuers, rescuers can come and evacuate you. To less radioactive vistas. <laughs> now, if you think that the nice, thick-walled building would take about 15 minutes travel time, don't do it. Oh, it's better to hole up in a flimsy shelter for a while. Like most, caught in midair? Yeah. Most homes in this era. Sure. Nowadays, because... Mm. People don't really have, like, solid, sturdy brick houses anymore. We make our shit out of stucco. Yeah. Fuck off. And wood. Uh-huh. Plasterboard. Not, like, good wood. Not like- good wood. <laughs> <laughs> so, he said you should stay there, but then you should eventually leave for a better shelter after roughly an hour, and then someone else out there has cancer. From this, because there was a study in the 50s that found that both beers and sodas still taste fine after a blast. So the joke in there was to pick some up on your way out of town. Oh, hilarious. Someone drank radioactive beer. Don't. In the name of science. That's a V-funny joke, but don't. Like, probably more than one person did this. Of drinking literal radioactive beer. Guys, like, if someone tries to hand you a radioactive drink, just say no. Just say no. Just say no to nuclear soda. (laughs) Okay, so they tell you to wait for about an hour because some of the most intense fallout radiation will have subsided by then. Though you still don't want to, like, expose yourself too much to it. I mean, yeah. But, like, after about an hour, it's like going in the pool after you eat. Just wait an hour. 
Sure. It's fine. You won't drown in all the fucking nuclear bullshit, I guess. What the fuck are we talking about right now? Listen. It's fine. It's not fine, though. All of the nuclear fissions have fallen out of the air or floated somewhere else on a little fission cloud of science. I just don't believe the scientists know what they're talking about back then. Obviously, they totally did. You're right. Because... Because no one has ever had cancer again. It's true. <laughs> it's very true. Well, that was so, incredibly yeah. unsettling. Yeah. I had read somewhere that today, because of like the state of our basements and our houses, if there is some sort of nuclear thingamajig... We're all fucked! Yeah, you have to get a tote. You know the tote you have inside your house? Um, it's like plastic and shit. You need to dig a motherfucking hole in your basement and surround that tote with like two feet of dirt on yeah. all sides and then get inside the tote and then don't leave for a week. Like, that is not useful information. No one can do that. We'll all die. None of us own homes anymore. None of us. Hi, we're millennials. Hi. We don't own homes. We're ruining Applebee's and we don't own homes because we buy avocados I have too only. much avocado toast in I my I cannot apartment. build a fort out of avocados. I will die in a nuclear fallout. I don't buy newspapers anymore. How am I supposed to know the nuclear bombs are coming? Oh, God. <laughs> Look. We're all going to die, okay? Look. And on that note, hey, that look. happy, happy note. Um, yeah. Eat I an know avocado. Always eat probably avocado. not radioactive. Probably support, like, the South American avocado trade, whatever. But, like, I love how we're like, no, mine's so sad. Yours is so much better. Better and yet here we are now worrying about possibly I dying from nuclear fallout. Never said mine was better. I you said got, it's not not bad. But you got so mad at me for mine <laughs> because at least mine wasn't kept in a box under somebody's bed while they gave birth. I think that Colleen, if she had been under that bed in that box and there was some sort of nuclear fallout, probably would have been the safest person in that family. Probably. There it is. There's the theme. There it is. <laughs> it took us all this time to find it, folks, but we found it. And for that, we're so sorry. Dear Colleen, we love you very much. You would have been okay in a nuclear fallout, probably. Probably. Maybe. Maybe. Whoops. Mm. Sorry. Please. Hey, thanks. Cool. All right. Um, thank you for joining us for yet another installment of the uh-oh feeling. Um <laughs> <laughs> You just like tried something new. I did. There, I loved it. And I don't know how to feel about it. The Ophelé? I loved it. Um, the Ophelé? Don't worry about it. Look, I'm fine and everything's fine and I might need to go to bed for eight years. But otherwise, I'm mm. so glad that you've been here on this horrible journey. <laughs> We're so sorry. We are very sorry. But I do hope that you will join us next, in the next two weeks. Yeah, because that'll be a big one. Yes, it's a big boy. Glitter ice cream. Glice cream. And I do I hope. I swear to God, you keep your portmanteaus to yourself. <laughs> I promise I will have taken a nap beforehand. And I promise that Emily will have 
many margaritas beforehand so she doesn't get too mad at all my horror. I'm jokes. so mad right now. <laughs> it didn't work. Your ploy for Margaritaville. You I o- missed the bus. <laughs> the boys in the band did not order enough boat drinks. <laughs> <laughs> Say goodbye, Emily. (laughs) Say goodbye, Emily. (laughs) Bye. Taylor, I want a divorce. This has been a Daily Gravy production. Thanks for listening.